Well, good morning. Welcome to the first part of our new series called I Don't Know. And that's something we hate to admit, especially us guys. Guys, you ever been driving in the car and you know you're lost? You know that you took a wrong turn. You know that it's the wrong street. But when your wife says, are we lost? What do you say? No, I know, I know right where I am. We don't want to say, honey, I'm lost. It's, it's really hard to admit when we don't know something. And then when that comes to matters of faith, it's even more difficult to admit when we just don't know something. Because maybe you grew up in a church or maybe you've heard about churches and, and religious people that, hey, you got to know it absolutely. And if you're off the least little bit, then, you know, it's like eternal smoking section for you. You know, you can't doubt. You can't not know something. You must know it and you must know it with certainty. And if there's any doubt, then, hey, you're in big trouble and God's going to get you for it. That's what a lot of people think when they think about their faith and then saying, well, you know, I don't know. You know, again, the world didn't end yesterday. It was another day when that old guy, I don't know where he is somewhere, like 90-some-year-old guy that keeps saying the world's going to end. I mean, eventually, you know, he's going to have to say, at some point in the future, the world will end. You know, I, I agree with that. But he's been trying to pinpoint the day, and he's going to have to eventually say, you know what, it's all smoke. I don't know. I, I just don't know. Have you ever, um, I'm sure you've heard of Bill Maher. He had a movie, kind of a... Uh, a documentary called Religious, and it's, it, it really knocks religion really bad. It, it you know, makes fun of a, a lot of different religions. But he says this kernel of truth in this film as he's talking to different people from different faiths, religious leaders, uh, religious followers, and he says this. It makes a great point. Religion is dangerous because it allows human beings who don't have all the answers to think they do. The only appropriate attitude to have about the big questions is not the arrogant certitude that is the hallmark of religion, but doubt. Doubt is humble, and that's what man needs to be, needs to be considering human history is just a litany of getting stuff dead wrong. And he's right about one thing, maybe just one thing in that whole documentary, is that oftentimes the appropriate attitude shouldn't be certainty, maybe it should be doubt. Maybe the proper answer sometimes is, you know, I don't know. So you've probably struggled with doubts in your life, and in this series we're going to deal with some very significant doubts that, that we believe people have. I know for a fact there are people at our church, people in my life that they doubt, that, is this Bible really God's word? Or is it just a historical document that was put together in an organized manner? Is it really God's word when you read it? Why would a God who says he loves everyone send somebody to hell separated from him for eternity? Why would God do that? Why would this all-loving God who cares about the least of these in the world allow the atrocities to go on that we see happen? Why? If someone came up on the street and asked you that, you may just have to say, you know, I don't know. How could it be that you could spend 
two or three or up to five hours a week saying, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to be in a small group, I'm going to take time reading my Bible and being involved with other people who have a relationship with Christ. How could that kind of an involvement really make a big difference in my life? Maybe your answer is, you know, I, I don't know. We're calling this series, I don't know, because we don't want to act like we have the answer to every single thing. We don't want to be one of those people that Bill Maher talked about with arrogant certitude. We just want to be able to come to God with our doubts, and over the next few weeks, we're going to speak to the very thoughts I just mentioned, to the doubts that creep into our minds. See, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Many people would say, if you have faith, you, may not, you cannot doubt. It's not the opposite of faith to have doubt. If you had no doubt, you would really need no faith anyway. Now, I know in the Bible it says you must believe and not doubt. It also says the person who doubts is like a wave tossed back and forth by the wind. They're kind of wishy-washy. That is a kind of doubt that's talked about in the Bible. But if you really look at what that kind of doubt means, that kind of doubt is more a hostility kind of doubt. A kind of doubt that, that kind of straddles the fence. A doubt that's never verbalized, that's always hidden. That's one kind of doubt. But there's another kind of doubt that's talked about in Scripture. In the book of Mark, as Jesus is having this interaction with a man who has a sick son... And this man expresses his doubt. There's some Bibles coming down the aisles right now. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. The ushers will give you one of those. Uh, you can keep it if you need a Bible, or you can leave it in the back on the way out. If you'd just like to use one, you can read along in there, or you can look on the screen as I read from several different passages today in the first part of the series. So Mark chapter 9, verse 21, a man has a sick son. First century, they called it demon possession. Maybe it was literally demon possession. Maybe it was some disease, but they called it demon possession. And it says, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It, the demon, has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. So what he's saying is, Jesus, I believe you. I've seen you work miracles. I've heard you teach. And I believe, but there's this, this little part of me that, that just struggles, that doesn't really believe. And while on one hand, I believe you, completely there's this other part of me that's like Jesus I need some help with these areas of unbelief in my life and Jesus didn't say next this joker doesn't believe me next and he doesn't say that to you either when you say how could God really feel that way how could God really do that I just doubt it I'm just not sure I just don't know God doesn't say next God meets you where you are in your doubts. 
So you don't have to have all the answers. LifePoint Church does not have to have all the answers. Donnie doesn't have to have all the answers, thank goodness. Because while my wife would think that I think I do, I don't have to. Here's what cures doubt. When you have doubt, you need three things. You need time, you need information, and you need experience. And when those things, when your doubt is within those things and you're open to those three things, taking time, getting information, and having experience, your doubt will begin to go away. But in the middle of that, God is not saying, well, you doubted, so you're out. It's okay to be in doubt, but it's not okay to stay there. We say all the time at LifePoint, hey, come as you are. We don't want you to stay that way. Occasionally, somebody will say, you said I could come as I am. I say, yes, we did, but don't stay that way. People have to change. We have to change. When our life is not aligned with God's word, we have to change. So yes, just like Jesus said, come as you are, but don't stay that way. So when it comes to God's word, we can believe and get in our hearts that God wrote a book and, and this book that we just gave out is from his breath and maybe from a little child you heard about it or maybe it was read in your home growing up and, and it was just a given that this is God's word but as I study it and I read it after knowing Christ for over 20 years there's still sometimes I'm like could that, that really happen or is this just a story? Could, could these things have truly happened? Could someone who was dead really get up again? Because I don't see it happening today. Could, could, could a guy get swallowed by a fish, like the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, and, and live for three days and then be vomited back up onto the sea, much more open, up to the, onto the shore, much more open to what God has to say? Could that happen? Sometimes it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Philosopher Voltaire, who, lived, who died in 1778, said this. A hundred years from now, the Bible will be swept from existence and you will hear no more of Christianity. And when Voltaire died, the Geneva Bible Society got his house and turned it in to a printing place for Bibles that were shipped out all over the world. So this book, can we really trust what this book says? There's 66 books within it, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It was written over 1,500 years. 40 authors wrote it. It's written in three different languages by very different types of people, some by kings, some by peasants, some by people who were running from the law. And yet it tells one story about one God and his relentless pursuit of of people. This is still the best seller in the world. There's more books written about the Bible than about anything else. More books reference the Bible and use the Bible as their source than anything else. So it's much more than just ink on a page. So if we're going to be equipped to answer questions, if we're going to be equipped to get our doubt little by little out of our lives and to get some information and to have an experience and to take the time for that to happen, We've got to start with the major source that we're going to use for everything, and that's the Bible. 
Now, you would expect me, this is church, I'm a pastor, you would expect me to say, well, this is God's Word. And in fact, in the Bible, it says it's God's Word. It says it's inspired by God. It says that everything in here comes literally from the breath of God. But it really doesn't mean much that a source claims itself to be true. So are there other things other than this source that that can show this is true? How do we know somebody just didn't make all this up and put together this grand story? How do we know this is not a huge hoax? If you're taking notes, you need to write this down. I can trust my Bible. And if you think you can't, I'm going to give you some information that will help you start to do that. Just a quick history of how we got this Bible into our hands. It's very fast. Got to skip some dates, but if you're taking notes, write these down. It's going to feel like history class for a couple minutes. 14 to 1500 BC. That's when the, the Ten Commandments, the law, the Jewish law was given to Moses. And that's when they began to put together God's story of creation, of his pursuit of the Jewish nation and his love for them and their rebellion. It took about a thousand years to put all of that together. And in about 500 BC, the 39 books that make up the Old Testament were finally completed. And even today, Jewish people hold those books, the first 39 books in this Bible, hold them in high regard as the holy scriptures of God. And all of that began, all that began back around 14 to 1500 BC with the first five books being formed and then later the rest of them came. And now the New Testament around the, in the first century AD, shortly after Jesus' birth, people started to, or after his death, people started to write down stories and their experience with what happened. Letters from eyewitnesses, letters from people who interviewed eyewitnesses, they began to write down the things that Jesus said and the things he did, and they began to appear. And in, in the year 393, the African Senate of Hippo decided on, here are the 27 books that are going to be in the New Testament. Now, it was a rigorous process to decide, well, how does a book make it into the New Testament? How do we know this apostle wrote the truth? How do we know this person really interviewed that person? How do we know that? So they had this, and you just Google it. Maybe you can find some reliable sources. If you want more, email me, and I'll give you some. But they had a rigorous process to get the 27 books that, were in, that are in the New Testament in there. In about 500 A.D., the Bible had been translated primarily because of Rome's rule, primarily into Latin. Well, the average person did not know Latin, and so the average person could not just pick up God's Word and read it. That's when the Bible started to move into the, the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages where it was only written in Latin, and it became illegal to hold on to a Bible. It became illegal for somebody like us, just common people, to open up God's word and read it because, hey, they're regular people. How in the world could they ever understand what God's trying to say? We need some man in dress to tell us what the Bible really means. We could never figure it out on our own. So they kept it separated from people for many, many, many centuries. And then around 1380, the Bible was translated into English from Latin. And then in the 17th century, the king of England commissioned the Bible to be translated 
into the common language of the day. And it was completed in 1611. And it's called the King James Version. Now, if you picked up a King James Version today, like I was, like I read when I went to Sunday school when I was a little boy, it is, it does, I can't understand it. It's really hard. It's got all these words that we don't use. But the original intent of this version, the King James, was so people could read it in the language of the streets. And so modern translations, most of which are good and accurate, go way back to the Greek and way back to the Hebrew, and they translate it in a language that we can understand today. Primarily at LifePoint, we use the New International Version or the New Living Translation. Either one of those two are, pretty, are very accurate. But the original intent of the King James was to get it in the language of the people. Modern translations get it in the language of the people. And that's how in a really quick version, how you got this book in your hand today. But that doesn't make it true. Those are just historical facts that that happened with this text. But does that mean that it's true? Well, I can trust the Bible, and I can trust the Bible because of its reliability. So can you prove that the sayings in here are true? Because we don't have any pictures, we don't have any videos, we don't have any signed copies, like they didn't do book signings. Paul didn't go around the Middle East saying, Paul will be over here at this bookstore signing today, you can get, there's no copies with signatures on them. So how do we know it just wasn't all made up? Several thousand thousand years from now, maybe they'll dig something up and they'll find what I saw in the grocery store the other day, 34 years later, there are still articles that says Jesus is, I mean, uh, uh, Elvis is alive. (laughs) That says Elvis Presley is still alive and Michael Jackson really didn't die and he's still alive. And what's going to happen a thousand, two thousand years from now when they dig those up and they find out that, hey, the U.S. presidents actually met with aliens. I mean, that's, what's the difference? How do we know the Bible It's not stories like that, that thousands of years ago, people just made up. Because our tendency as humans is to change things a little bit. You've played the game before. You've played the gossip game where you put somebody at this end of the line and you whisper something into their ear like, cows really like to eat grass. And it gets all the way over here to the other end. It's like, the teacher's got gas, you know, and all the kids laugh. I mean, it's human tendency for things to kind of be embellished as they go on. How do we know that didn't happen with the Bible? Well, one way is to look at the evidence. What's the evidence that shows, well, the Bible really is an accurately written historical document. Several years ago, I went upstairs in our house, and there was the smell that knocked me down. I mean, oh my gosh, it was horrible. The first thing I I knew, something's dead in my house. And it turned out to be a squirrel in the attic. And I had to go through all that pink insulation with gloves on and my nose like that until I found a carcass of a squirrel to get the smell out of my house. So just like when I smelled something, that was the evidence. Hey, there's, there's really something dead in here. Is there evidence about the Bible that would help us to be led towards A conclusion that, yes, this book is historically accurate. And then if we have the information that the book is historically accurate, would it be possible that we would allow ourselves to have an experience 
with this book when we see how accurate it really is. If you just compare the Bible to to uh, other historical documents, and I'm just going to list some up here. Uh, if you take if you take literature, or you're really into that, or world history, especially in the literature realm, uh, you may recognize some of these. And I won't ask for a show of hands like I did first service because it was a really uneducated group of people. Is all I'm saying. All right, <laughs> Julius Caesar has uh, this uh, this commentary called the Gaelic Wars. And it was written, not really by him, it was written by somebody he hired to write it. So how accurate could a book hired by a politician, when a politician hires somebody to write a book, how accurate could it really be? But the Gaelic Wars, I'm going to show you all the, the uh, evidence for it. The Gaelic Wars uh, were written about, uh, the, early, the time of writing was about uh, 50 B.C. Now, we don't have a document that says 50 B.C., but that's when, all, when scholars believe it was written. So the earliest manuscripts that would, that would indicate this was written in 50 BC are about from 900 AD. So that means 950 years separate the time of writing to the earliest manuscripts that they have. So over 950 years and they have to go back and say, okay, it was written in 50 B.C., and 950 years separates from when it was written to the earliest manuscript they have. And they have about 10 of those manuscripts that are 950 years from the events occurring, and yet this is taught every day. This is true. The Gaelic Wars really happened. So then somebody uh, that more of us have probably heard about is uh, Josephus. And Josephus wrote several things, and one he wrote one document that he wrote or book was called the Antiquities of the Jews, which is the history of the Jewish nation. And Josephus actually talks about these people who follow Jesus Christ, and he talks about people who talk about Christ. And he wrote his stuff in about about nine hundred, about ninety five A.D. The earliest manuscript comes from about ten fifty A.D., which means. There is about a thousand years that separate when it was written to the earliest manuscript that they have. So they've got it. This is a thousand years old. It must be accurate. They only have, have been able to discover a little bit less than 30 manuscripts or 30 copies that are a thousand years old. And then there's this other guy. His name is Homer, not Homer Simpson. This other guy that was really smart. Uh, his writings originate about 800 B.C. And then the earliest manuscripts come from about 100 A.D., which means there's about 900 years that separate Homer and his 800 B.C. writings with early manuscripts. So 900 years uh, is what, it ha- what the time that separates. And there's quite a few copies of that. There's 643. These are real historical documents that if you had a literature class in college, maybe even high school, you've heard about these and they've been taught not from a perspective of uh, these really aren't true. They've been taught more from a perspective of these are true, read them. I'm going to ask you some questions and give you a test on it. And yet the Gaelic Wars, 10 copies. Josephus, less than 30 copies, 643, which is quite a bit of copies of Homer. Now, if you line up the New Testament, how would the New Testament compare to these works because it's scrutinized. People are very skeptical. Is it even true? I took a class in college called the teachings of Jesus and it wasn't to learn. It was in the religion department of a state school. So it wasn't like to hold up like Sunday school, the teachings of Jesus. It was the things that he didn't teach. 
And what the professor finally shared with us that he believed Jesus actually said was maybe some of the Lord's Prayer and nothing else for sure. So there were no classes for me, that one anyway, that said, oh, it's true, it's real. It's... So here's, the, here's how the New Testament stacks up against these. So the New Testament was written between 50 and 95 AD. So the earliest manuscripts found are about 125 AD, and it's interesting that they were found in Egypt, and that means that this, these words, this, these manuscripts traveled a long way because that's not where they were written. They would have been written all in the Middle East area around Jerusalem and around what is the Middle East today. So in the year separation, it's about 50 years that separate the original manuscripts from the oldest manuscripts, the years that separate it. And if you want to know, well, how many, how many, how many trans or how many copies do you think we have of the Bible, of the New Testament? It's 5,000 in Greek. So 5,000 copies in Greek. If you count other languages, it goes up to about 25,000. So if you look at that, when you stack the New Testament, so this is the information that should help you with your doubts. The information says, out of all of these books, these three are these works, these three are considered to be historically accurate and they're taught every day as fact. And yet the Bible is the one most scrutinized and it has the most historical oomph behind it. There's more documentation to prove that the Bible really is what it says it is. All of these ancient texts are quoted like they're true with very little evidence to support them. All of the, all of the political writings of Rome and, and other writings of that day are, there's just a handful of manuscripts to prove that and yet the history of Rome and the political writings of the day are held up as fact, even though there's just a handful of manuscripts to prove it. Now, if you even look, if you look at the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, that was written way before the New Testament. And in 1950, they found this, these jars in a cave in the Middle East called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody ever heard of that? The Dead Sea Scrolls, ended up being a copy of the book of Isaiah, which was a thousand years older than any other manuscript of Isaiah they had. So you would think, it's a thousand years older than anything we've got. We've got this multiple thousand year old book in our Old Testament called Isaiah, and there was no difference. It was still the same. After all those years, it was still the same on scrolls that had been hidden for 4,000 years. So if you just look at the New Testament, the Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, four detailed accounts written by four different people, and the earliest was found in 125 AD. So almost all biblical scholars agree that the New Testament was finished before the first century wound up. In fact, of about a 70-year period, they were, this was all completed within 70 years. So some people alive would have been around to witness the events that were written about. And if some people were alive and people were out there forging all these documents and making all this stuff up, you would think you would find a bunch of other documents that say, hey, there's this false stuff going around about this guy that really didn't live named Jesus and really didn't do miracles because they were there. And yet there's no contemporary writings 
with the New Testament writings that dispute what the New Testament says. So the writers would have known, hey, if, if, if we're going to fake this, people are going to find us out. Let's wait a couple, let's, you know, make sure they wait a couple of generations before we write it down so everybody's dead that would have experienced it. The next closest book to the Old Testament are the works of Homer. And there's 643 copies. And across those 643 copies, there's a 90% agreement. In the New Testament, across the 5,000 plus copies, there's only a one-half percent variant in all the information. And the variant is not like, you know, it said God created the world and the other one said, no, it just happened to pop into existence. That's not the variant. The variants are things like maybe they got a, a geographical location wrong, said this town and it was really this town. Maybe it's a misspelling. Maybe they got some events out of order. None of it changes doctrine, but there are some variants, one half of a percent across thousands of documents that have minute variances. Even if we didn't have that, the church fathers from the second and third century had memorized scripture. And you could take, if you took everything the church fathers wrote, which just was their memory of what they had been taught, there's only like 11 verses different in all of that. So the Bible we have in our hand represents the original manuscripts with a very high degree of accuracy. That's the knowledge you need to push some doubts away and now what you need is an experience. So I've got the knowledge. It's clear. It's the most, it's, of all these, it's way more verifiable than any other one, any other historical document. What about an experience? Well, the Bible talks about this experience with the God that wants to come to you and rescue you. This experience with the God who wants to redeem you and forgive you and restore you. And while those are great arguments from an academic perspective, they're just information. But God wants to have an experience with you. So his words are not just words on a page. I can trust the Bible because it's alive and it says so. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts an attitude of the heart. These words can change your life. These words can help you align your life better with God's will for your life. These words can lead you to an experience which will then lead to lessening the doubts in your life. These words are real and they're alive. I, I still have the Bible that Early in college, when I started reading God's Word, it was actually a King James Version. It's all I could find at my house. And so I got it, and I took it to school with me as my older brothers, and I began to read it. And it, all of a sudden, even in, that, even in that ancient English, I read it, and it spoke to me, and I ended up accepting Christ. And I wrote in the front of this book, it's all, it's all messed up and torn, and it's on my bookshelf. It says, I wrote in the front of it, I said, it's from this book. I learned the truth about Jesus Christ and dated it September 1988. These words are powerful. No matter what translation you're using, they're powerful and they can change your life. So you can trust this book because of the information, but you can also trust it because it leads you into 
and experience. And God is okay with you saying, I doubt it. I don't know. He's willing to wait. Because doubt shows a humility, a willingness to learn. And when you're willing to say, I don't know how to get past this part in my life. I don't know how we're ever going to make things work financially. I don't know how we're ever going to put this relationship back together. I don't know how I'm ever going to get through this. God's word can help you with that. God's word is the starting point for many answers in life, for direction and for doubt. Sometimes his word says things I don't like. That part about doing good to people who don't do good to you, I I would not have written it that way. I I would have written when somebody annoys you, punch them in the face, you know. That's what most of us would write. But the Bible says, no, when somebody's not good to you, here's what you do. Here's how you treat them. You love people who don't love you. So anytime the Bible comes in conflict with how I'm living my life, guess what I have to do? No matter how difficult, no matter how much it may not may or may not make sense to other people, I have to step back and align my life with what God's word says. Just like the guy in Mark chapter 9, you may say, I believe it, but God help me with my disbelief, my unbelief. Help me with my doubt. You know what Jesus did when that guy said that? He healed his son. He made his son whole. And our church is a safe place for you to come and express your doubts. We actually have a couple different options. If, if, you, if you want to take this further, we're getting ready to start a new starting point class, which is where I took all this information from and all the dates that I gave you. And it's in much more detail. It's called Starting Point, And it, it really gets deep into the scriptures. And it gets deep into doubt and evidences for creation. And, and, and what does it really mean to be redeemed? And all that really foundational stuff to, to the Christian faith, you can learn about that. In this. It's a 13-week class. It's a powerful experience. Just write starting point on the back of your WhatsApp card if you'd like more information about when we're going to start the next one. And if you're in a life group, you're going to get to discuss all this stuff that I just talked about today. You're going to get to discuss it in a group of people and say, oh, I didn't buy that. Oh, he was wrong about this. I mean, there's probably some people in here smarter than me. So you may know something I didn't know. And so you're going to get to go and and talk about, hey, that's what we talked about today. The Bible really is true. I have a friend who is now the author of three books. He used to be a big skeptic. He didn't really believe it. He didn't live it. And something happened one day when he opens, opened God's word. And he's ended up writing three books about faith. He's ended up spending, spending many summers on mission trips, making a difference. All because a doubter was able to come to God with his doubts and have those answered. He offers the same thing to you. And over the next few weeks, as we address these questions that that you may be saying, I don't know, and I doubt it. Allow yourself time. Allow yourself to get the information and allow yourself to have an experience with God that will take care of the doubts that you have and just let God meet you right where you are. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that's so powerful and true. And Father, it builds confidence when we Look at your word against all these other historical documents. And we see that that these words are really true. That these events really happened. And Father, for the person that is sitting here today still doubting, still wondering if you're really there. God, may they 
be drawn back here to listen to the things we talk about. And may they know that it's okay to say, I don't know. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.